today. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and I'm really, really, really excited to be talking with Jacqueline, Dr. Jacqueline Jacques today um, of Thorne. She's actually the Senior Vice President of Portfolio Development for Thorne Nutraceuticals. Um, and she's going to be talking about the endocannabinoid system, which I have been wanting to dive into desperately on this podcast. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Jacques. In addition to her role at Thorne, she's a naturopathic physician graduating from my alma mater with 20 years experience in medical nutrition. She actually has a great career, a really interesting history. We've been chewing the fat for a while here. Um, she spent much of her career in the dietary supplement industry as a formulator, a speaker, a worldwide speaker, published author, peer-reviewed published author, um, and educator. And her most recent passion is all things endocannabinoid and tapping into its potential through nutrition. Dr. Jacques, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you so much and for the lovely introduction. Very happy to be here. <laughs> Yay. All right. So let's just, let's just dive right in. Talk to me about the endocannabinoid system. What is it? You know, why the heck do we care about it? Yeah, well, I keep uh, becoming fond of telling people that the endocannabinoid system is the most exciting thing that you didn't learn about in school. <laughs> or at least I think that's true. <laughs> for me, the most exciting thing I didn't learn about in school, at least. Yeah. I graduated in, in 1997, and um, science really wasn't, you know, uncovering that we even had this system in our bodies until the, like really the 1980s, 1990s. Um, so it is common when I start talking about the endocannabinoid system or the ECS as we shorten it for people is they say, how come I didn't learn about that? And I say, well, it wasn't in books. <laughs> like no one yeah. was doing it. No one was doing it. Um, the focus had been on, uh, on marijuana and marijuana as a drug of use or abuse. And for a long time, no one looked any further. So we really just didn't know that this was there. Right. Um, when we looked and as we're continuing to look because much of the science is still new, um, we've discovered that it's a really pretty well-distributed vast system in the human body, yes. um, not a structural system. So this isn't something like your skeletal system or your muscular system or your vascular system where you can, you know, dissect it out and see it. Um, but it's a broadly distributed uh, set of receptors that are found really almost everywhere in the body. Um, and uh, two, the two primary ones are the CB1 and the CB2 receptor. Um, but there are some others that are emerging. Um, there's uh, at least uh, one PPAR receptor. We're looking at interactions between uh, endocannabinoids now and vanilloid receptors. So um, probably some other things that will continue to emerge as the science evolves. Um, so we have these receptors. Um, we find them uh, in the nervous system, the digestive system, in the skin, in the reproductive system. Um, as I said, they're very well distributed. And humans make two of our own endogenous cannabinoids or endocannabinoids. Um, and those are uh, anandamide, um, which also gets called the bliss molecule. Right. It's the one that was first discovered. Um, and uh, was discovered because a lot of its endogenous action is most similar to what THC does. So it was probably the easiest one to isolate and find. And then uh, 2-arachidonyl glycerol, which gets abbreviated 2-AG, is our other endogenous cannabinoid. So you sounded like you were going to say something, so I'm going to stop talking. Well, I'm just thinking about Ananda and the anandioid receptor. Say it again. I may have mispronounced uh, anand it. Anandamide is the anandamide, anandamide. excuse me. 
Okay. And then the receptors are CB1 and CB2. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the anandamide. So Ananda, I think, isn't yeah. that like one of the gods of bliss in like yes. Hinduism? Okay. So it's I like. Know, a I do not know my, my Hindu mythology very well. So someone listening probably does. But yes. I know that they frequently call this the bliss molecule. Yeah, and that's. Okay. So at some point, we need to circle back and talk a little bit more about like how we, uh, you know, beyond using um, cannabinoids, how we might boost that baby so i'll take a note and we'll circle back to it um it's widespread it's 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 it's, you know these receptors are found everywhere we're just starting to uncover it um you know their their functions and i know their functions are incredibly varied uh but talk about some of the top ones that you're thinking about um and that we're concerned with it's it, absolutely. So I think just to give people an overview, like kind of the, the, the top line function of the endocannabinoid system is that it's a homeostatic regulatory system for the body. So it's almost like the body's natural adaptogenic system. It's Interesting. a system that is very concerned with keeping homeostasis and keeping balance. So if you always sort of keep that in mind as you're in the back of your head, as you're learning about functions of the endocannabinoid system, certain things start to make more sense. Right. So people can look, I've had people ask me, so in the nervous system, the endocannabinoid system will downregulate both glutamine and GABA. And they're like, well, how does that make any sense? And I'm like, well, it keeps everything from getting too extreme. Right. So it keeps our tone in our nervous system because it downregulates both glutamine and GABA. Right. Uh-huh. So you don't want things to be too relaxed. You don't want them to be overstimulated. You want good tone. Right. And that is what the ECS is concerned with. Um, so in terms of other functions, um, a lot of function in the nervous system, the nervous system is very rich with endocannabinoid uh, receptors, um, plays a big role in learning and memory, um, in pain signaling. Uh, we have a big role in how the brain responds to and stores memories related to trauma. Um, in particular, it's very important, uh, in, uh, in what the ECS does, um, it acts a lot, there's a lot of CB2 receptors. The other receptor are found a lot in the sympathetic nervous system um, and help to maintain the tone of the sympathetic nervous system. And then we also see um, within the nervous system, if we wanna count the, the functions related to stress and mood um, are very much under control, how we respond to those things are very activated by the endocannabinoid system. So modulates the release of things like dopamine and norepinephrine, serotonin, um, initiates our, our first response to something stressful. Um, the ECS reacts very quickly um, to things like uh, acute fear or acute anxiety. Huh. Um, and uh, it helps us to modulate when it's, when it's got a healthy tone to it. It really helps us to modulate our level of arousal to particularly unpleasant stimuli. That's so interesting. A healthy ECS can be the difference between something small causing you to have a very traumatic experience or to your ability to sort of brush things off more healthily. Right? So, so, I mean, would you say that this is a, almost like an HPA adaptogen or a HPA? Um, well, well, it's, 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 own, it's its own system. And so it does interact with, you know, the, our whole sort of cortisol regulatory system and our fight or flight system. So it's interacting with those systems, but more to keep them in check yeah. <laughs> than to, you know, directly be part of those systems itself. Okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, no, it absolutely makes sense. If it attenuates a fear response or a uh, hyper arousal response, it, it does make sense that it would have kind of a balancing impact on 
on that system as well. Um, and we see it everywhere. I mean, I could go on, but we've got, you know, a lot of ECS functions in the digestive system. Um, it's got a role within uh, metabolic function, um, immune and inflammatory responses. Yeah, exactly. I was, re- I, I was reading about NMDA regulation being influenced by the endocannabinoid system. Yep. And NERF2, which NERF2. regulates um, um, NF-kappa B. So potent regulatory Player in inflammation is that correct? Yeah, in inflammation and also um, and also the immune system. So we see, I mean, there are endocannabinoid receptors in virtually every important organ and cell of the immune system. There, yeah. and when we get to, hopefully, we'll have a point here where we get to talk about phytocannabinoids and the way that some of the things we find in plants or in nature can interact with this system. But I think that's going to become a fairly important area of research in the future. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, we're going to dive into phytocannabinoids here in a minute. Let me just pick your brain on some more of the basics, though. All right. right. So clearly, we're sourcing some of... So phytocannabinoids, as I understand it, there are a lot of sources. And we can, as you said, we can generate endogenous cannabinoids. But um, hemp and marijuana are the ones that we think about as being the big provider of the cannabinoids. And so what's the difference between hemp and marijuana from a, a broad perspective? Yeah, that's a really, it's a really important question for people to ask. So, I mean, they are cultivars of the same plant. So they are both cannabis sativa. So it's not really surprising that people, you know, get a little bit confused when they're thinking, okay, well, how do I know? Like, what is hemp? What is hemp? You know, which one is which? Um, You know, how do I know the difference between them? Um, They look different. So if you see them um, growing, you know, if you get familiar with how they're cultivated and what they look like, um, they they appear as different plants. Some hemp plants are are taller and stockier and um, I mean, they have longer stalks <laughs> um, and they have less of the developed uh, tops or the flowers or, you know, that, that people uh, who are growing for marijuana purposes um, are looking to cultivate. Um, so hemp uh, primarily is starting to be cultivated again in the United States, but it's primarily cultivated outside the U.S. Um, for industrial purposes. So hemp is used all over the world for things like clothing and paper and biofuels and plastics. And you see hemp in cosmetics. You also see it in foods and supplements. Um, typically it's cultivated outdoors. Um, it's a, a large scale crop. Um, and a big part of the definition of what makes something hemp is the concentration of the psychoactive compound THC. Ah. So, um, to be in most of the world to be classified as hemp versus marijuana, you have to have less than or equal to 0.3% THC um, in the uh, aerial parts of the plant. Um, marijuana, on the other hand, um, the other major cultivar of cannabis, um, was initially primarily grown for recreational purposes. Um, humans uh, have done that with many plants uh, in, our, in our history. Um, and so those plants have primarily been cultivated over time to enhance the content of THC rather than to enhance the other properties. Uh-huh. Uh, so... Uh, Technically, if it's got you know higher than the allowable 0.3% of THC, um, most of the world that would then be considered to be marijuana and not hemp. Um, but there are other differences in the way that the plants appear and in the way that they're cultivated. Um, so they're usually so, pretty distinct looking from each other. Got it. So same same plant but different cultivars. Yep. And they're just okay. And they're just emphasizing different aspects within within hemp. 
So it's um, kind of like if you grew roses and you grew one to be red and one to be white. <laughs> it's very, you know. Um, Got it. Different properties. Got it. Okay. Well, so then that, you know, the next, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about the legality of hemp and that's probably a little bit, since it's the same plant, yeah. you know, the, the legality must be a little more muddy than I thought, which was, yeah, hemp is legal, although we can't grow it. So actually, just as I'm talking to you about it out loud, there's some, or we can't grow it everywhere. Um, but anyway, so is hemp legal? Kind of just talk to me about some of that. Yeah, it's, tricky. A, it's a really tricky place right now in the United States. We are in this big place of flux um, yeah. in terms of the legality of all these things right now. Um, and it's going to look different depending on where in the United States you live um, in particular. So on the federal level, the top level, um, all cannabis was made illegal in the United States in 1970. So when the Controlled Substances Act was passed, um, it created, uh, made all of cannabis, hemp and marijuana, um, illegal, right? Um, and it, almost since that time, uh, people are making efforts to bring back use of one or other of the cultivars. Um, so where we stand right now, we've got, I don't know how many right now, 28, 29, maybe 30 states um, that have passed their own state level laws um, for medical marijuana. Um, some states like mine here in California have now enacted personal use allowances for marijuana as well. And um, separately from marijuana, so completely separately, uh, in 2014, there was an amendment to uh, the Agricultural Act, which allowed for the limited production of hemp um, under state licenses as part of the Farm Bill. Um, so we now have some states that under these experimental licenses are also able to grow hemp. Um, and some of those are the same states that have legalized marijuana, and some of them aren't the same states that have legalized marijuana. So um, the top line is that on the federal level, anything that's grown here domestically, um, while some of it may be legal at the level of your individual state, is not legal federally. And that includes both marijuana and hemp. So when we're looking for, so for what I do, being in the dietary supplement industry, when we started looking at these things and saying, how can we bring some of these health benefits to our doctors and to our customers? Um, the only thing that is currently allowable for, uh, for our purposes is to actually import um, hemp stock extract uh, from Europe. So and probably from other places, but we're importing from Europe. Um, that was something that was never made illegal under the Controlled Substances Act. So as long as you're using correct parts of the plant, like the stock or the seed, um, and as long as you're able to demonstrate that you meet uh, the criteria for having the very low levels of THC in the plant, you've got correct documentation, you can bring for commerce, you can bring in things like hemp stock extract from places uh, like Europe. So it is, it is very changeable. I, th I think that we will see here in the US, I think we will see greater legality for, um, for hemp and for marijuana in what time frame? It's, it's hard to tell. It's, it's a very... Um, it's a very hot topic right now, and it's a very rapidly moving target. We, we just saw, uh, I think it was uh, the state of Kentucky just introduced um, a proposal for making hemp growth federally legal. 
Um, and you've had some increased push um, also in the federal government for, um, for rescheduling marijuana. So I don't know what we're going to see in the coming years, but I, I suspect it will keep changing. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It sounds like it's a totally big moving target. Although, you know, interestingly, just as a historical sidebar, we used to grow hemp everywhere. I mean, it was a massive crop. It was a massive crop. hundred year, hundred years ago or so, and we used it in industry quite a bit. It's in, it's we used it in medicine. So doctors, you know, some of the greatest people who opposed um, uh, the laws against marijuana in this country were physicians who were very upset by the loss of some of these things as medicine. So if you look back at the history, um, doctors were some of the loudest voices in protesting things like the Marijuana Tax Act and things like that, that eventually led to these substances becoming illegal. Well, all right, so let me ask you a question. Um, you know, in my clinical practice, and we've got a clinical development program where, you know, physicians transitioning and other clinicians transitioning in functional medicine are, are working with us. And, you know, we have grand rounds and all sorts of discussions. And this is, CBD is a massive topic. Um, uh, you know, talking, well, medical marijuana, less so, hemp, less so, but specifically um, cannabidiol cannabinoidiol, if I'm saying it right, sorry, cannabidiol, you got it. <laughs> is, is, is something that everybody's using and experimenting with and thinking about. And we're all, you know, attempting to dive into the endocannabinoid system and think about how we might influence patient outcome with this. And, and, you know, cannabidiol, CBD concentrate or CBD, CBD from hemp sources available all over the place now. Um, but if I'm hearing you correctly, it's such a moving target as far as regulation. And if we're only allowed to use the stem and the seeds, we actually want to, we, we, just to, just to kind of CYA, if you, you know, to make sure we're practicing correctly in the state of current regulation, we probably want to be mindful around our source material and if we're looking at concentrated for CBD, we might actually need to be a little bit mindful around that. Is that true? Or even, honestly, frankly, even labeled as CBD. So um, the, uh, to be a dietary supplement, you have to follow certain rules. And, and if you don't follow certain other rules, you're, you're a drug. So right now, the FDA has made it very clear uh, through warning letters and other things that they've sent to existing commercial companies that they consider cannabidiol to be a drug primarily based on the fact that uh, GW Pharmaceuticals um, was publishing investigational trials going back as far as 2007. Um, and they are a plant-derived CBD. So um, they basically claimed ownership over that well before anybody was demonstrating doing that in commerce in the food or supplement space. Now, that, could that change in the future? Yes. Could somebody um, you know, find a way to demonstrate that maybe these things were used in commerce um, prior to uh, 2007 or, or even before that, ideally, so that they were compliant with, um, with the Shea law. Um, it's possible, um, but it hasn't been done yet to the best of my knowledge. So um, it's a sticky place. And, you know, separate from that, there are states that on a state level, similar to passing medical marijuana laws, there are states that have passed local laws um, making CBD legal within their state. So I think for practitioners, probably the most you know, important thing for them to do is just be familiar with what the regulations are that govern them where they are. <laughs> um, because it's a, it's a mishmash right now of what is 
um, and isn't allowed depending on where you live. So for us, as a, you know, just to speak uh, on behalf of you know, what I do and, and what Thorne has done, the position that we took on this is that um, we wanted to be able to provide something that was you know, going to be appropriate for our customers wherever they were. Right. So the only way that we currently understand that that can be done is by using an extract that's made from the, again, the illegally allowable parts of the plant, which would be things like hemp stock, um, and that the, that the extract be unmanipulated, meaning it's not enriched with CBD, for example. It's not standardized for anything, but it is reflective of a natural blend of the compounds that are in the plant. Okay. Okay. So, and, and again, I can't play lawyer for, for all of your listeners out there. I just, I think it's a, an area that um, is complex enough that, that people should try to probably understand what impacts them most where they are. Mm-hmm. Got it. Right. And many of us, our clinic included, well, we're a multi-state clinic and, you know, we work with people from all over the country. So, and I'm in a very conservative state, Connecticut, even though we've got medical marijuana, it's so, so tightly regulated. It's actually minimally used in our state, unfortunately. So we would need to be just mindful on our, on, 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 on what we're purchasing, um, especially as we also practice across different states. Um, But, you know, you and I were talking about your source material being from Europe, and Europe has this incredibly rich history um, in developing and growing, you know, really quality hemp with, um, you know, adequate uh, concentration of the important constituents. Is that true? Yeah. So, I mean, again, where we cut off the ability for our... um, you know, our agricultural uh, industry here in the United States to be able to grow and develop cannabis. Um, many other parts of the world never did. Um, and Europe has had a continual business in, um, uh, particularly in hemp cultivation, um, for many, many decades. So, um, and again, I don't want to. I don't want to slight the work that's going on here in the U.S. I mean, states like Kentucky and other places have really led the way in starting the the process of building an industrial hemp. Um, growing uh, uh, trade here in our state. It's just in its infancy. It's very young. Mm -hmm. So many things haven't been worked out. So um, in Europe, there's actually approved strains of hemp um, that are, you know, very well understood um, in terms of the growing conditions and things required to make them be very consistent. And, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of hectares of land that are dedicated to growing some of these things. And and people have been doing this for decades. So... um, it's, a, you know, again, when we're looking at wanting to do something that's very consistent every time we make a batch of product, um, it's very comforting to be able to know that we're buying the same thing every single time. Right. Um, it's, you know, it's grown under the conditions that foster it to, to have the chemical properties that it does. Um, it's, I, do I think that we'll get here in the U.S. to be able to do that at some point? I, I hope so, but... Um, I think Europe is decades ahead of us right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good. Um, okay. All right. Well, we'll definitely pay attention to how we evolve in the U.S. Um, and I'm glad we're, you know, starting to launch the industry again. And you know that research is emerging in this field. It's extremely important and very interesting, and obviously important mm-hmm. to us as practitioners because this system is uh, clearly one that we can impact and have a benefit 
uh, in our patients. So let's go back to the cannabinoids and, you know, specifically, you know, phytocannabinoids and what you they're, they're present in hemp, they're present in the stem, they're present in the seeds. What do we, what do, you know, what do they do? And Yeah, what do they do? Um, so we can have these compounds uh, in nature that interact with the system in, in several different ways, right? So um, one of the things I didn't mention when we talked about the endocannabinoid system, so I said we've got a couple of our own cannabinoids um, that we make. We have a couple of well-known receptors, which are CB1 and CB2, and probably some others that are still being sorted out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have um, enzymes. Uh, we have enzymes actually that make the cannabinoids, but more importantly, we have degrading enzymes um, that break them down. So um, when we look at how substances from plants, um, which we call phytocannabinoids, because phytoplant cannabinoids, um, interact with the system, they're primarily interacting in a couple of different ways, at least from the ones that we've identified so far. So they can act at one of the receptors as an agonist um, or a partial agonist. Um, They can act at one of the receptors as an antagonist. Um, And we know of a few of those that are found actually even in some very common plants. Um, Or they can um, act sort of as uh, as reuptake inhibitors um, and um, most commonly by acting on a degrading enzyme called fatty acid amihydrolase or FA. Um, those, are, those are the ones that are showing up most commonly with natural substances. Huh. Okay. And so what are we seeing in hemp? A little bit of all of the above, actually. So when we look at the collective uh, compounds that are found in hemp, probably the major thing, some of the compounds in hemp uh, act... Uh, on the CB2 receptor, but more weakly. So um, the strongest acting substance on the CB2 receptor um, in the hemp plant is actually found in the flowering tops, which again, we can't use um, legally in a dietary supplement, but it's something called beta-caryophyllin, is a selective CB2 receptor agonist. But the good news is we can get beta-caryophyllin from things that you just find in your spice cabinet. So it's in clove, it's in black pepper, <laughs> um, it's in several other places. So um, we can kind of get that um, from places other than the flowering tops of the plants and add it back in. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, 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 the really new, the brand spankingly new launched hemp <laughs> plus product has some of these other phytocannabinoid sources in them. Yeah, and that's the major other one is is um, is adding back in that constituent of the beta caryophyllin that um, again because we can't extract from the flowering tops of the plants, um, but we can get that from, as I said, very common things. <laughs> it's, it's it's pretty easy to get out of other sources. That's that's great. All right, so you said pepper, you said rosemary. Um, what are some other sources? Um, there's some cool sources of phytocannabinoids. It's sort of like once people discovered this system, they really started um, going and looking for some of the things that might be out there and, you know, could we explain their activity um, as being part of uh, and as being part of the system, right? Um, or acting on the system. So even within hemp, they've already identified, depending on whose paper you read, somewhere between maybe 80 and 100 cannabinoids that just come from plant. Um, for just come from just come from cannabis, um, and you know. So whereas THC and CBD are the ones that get talked about a lot, um, there's CBC and CBN and CBG, and there's a whole range of these things that I 
strongly believe we're going to see more information coming out about them over time. Um, you're already starting to see particularly um, cannabichromine, which is CDC, is having a lot more research done on on that compound, especially its role in inflammation. Um, and it has some fairly significant activity in the, the skin and the digestive system. So we may see some topical applications with CBC, um, other things like that. Uh, CVG as well, um, also very active in skin um, uh, and in the immune system. But then outside of cannabis, um, I mentioned beta-caryophyllin because that's one that's uh, found in a lot of places in nature. Um, one that I think your readers might have, or your, your listeners might appreciate is um, dianolmethane, DIM. Mm. It turns out to be a phytocannabinoid. So wow. even though you, don't, you have to sort of make DIM in your body from uh, other compounds and cruciferous vegetables, it actually is a selective CB2 receptor agonist, which probably helps to explain some of the things that we know about the benefits of DIM, right? Um, also echinacea. So echinacea has a group of compounds in it called... Um, I always butcher this, but I think it's ankylamides, um, which are starting to draw a lot of attention in research, um, again, because of their action on the CB2 receptor. And I think I mentioned this earlier, but our immune system is very rich with CB2 receptors. So we find them uh, in the bone marrow and the spleen and a whole range of cells in the immune system. Um, so that probably helps to explain some of the the benefits that people attribute to echinacea is that you've got these compounds in there that we now know are interacting with that part of the endocannabinoid system. Yeah, that's um, so fascinating. I mean, yeah, that's right? really, yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, I prescribed them, right? I, I prescribed them all the time if I want to, you know, modulate estrogen metabolism. I use mm -hmm. it all the time. And here there's a whole, you know, there's a whole, I don't know, another world of interventions and its ability to bind CB2. That's, that's very interesting to me. All right, thanks. Um, and clove is particularly rich? Um, well, clove and pepper, um, so uh, beta-caryophyllin is part of a set of aromatic compounds. Um, uh, it's, it's actually a sesquiterpenoid for your people who really like chemistry, um, but it's a sesquiterpenoid phytocannabinoid. So um, in a lot of our aromatic plants are actually good sources of beta-caryophyllin. Um, in our case, for the hemp oil plus for thorn, um, we are using a combined extract of clove and uh, unripe black pepper to um, provide that compound. Jesus, isn't that, that's so interesting. Might you just, you know, out of curiosity, might you mm -hmm. find it in um, concentrated in um, essential oils? Yeah, absolutely. Since it's a terpene? Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you would. And that's, we are particularly using oil extracts um, in our product, um, are you to get yeah, um, because you get different depending on what you how you extract you you're going to get different uh, components of a plant. Um, so um, I would, love it. I'm not I'm not a big expert in, a, in the whole essential oil space, but um, mm -hmm. because these are aromatic compounds and they are um, in that oil uh, fatty part of the plant, um, I would assume that some of those essential oils might be exceptionally rich in some of these compounds. That's, that's just, that's great. That's extremely interesting to me. Um, <laughs> okay, so, you know, what about, a lot of people want to use THC. I mean, I think in our world, we're leaning more on CBD these days. But do you, do, does, C, does THC need to be a part of the, um, you know, a part of the whole cannabinoid product you're using to get any benefit? It's, it's going to depend with anything like the benefit people are looking for. Um, I 
you know, think that THC has demonstrated medical benefit. Uh Um, And it has a different action from many of the other phytocannabinoids. It acts very strongly on the CD1 receptor. um, And some of those actions have real medical benefit. And I think in in certain conditions, particularly certain kinds of uh, pain, probably certain uh, things that we see within uh, within oncology or um, with other chronic diseases, maybe like HIV, um, there's really good valid medical uses for um, THC containing extracts from marijuana. Um, and I, I, will, I don't want to set that apart as having medical value. I think that we've seen enough data on it um, that it's hard to deny that there are medical benefits that are associated with THC. Right. Well, and I just wanted to throw in the obvious. It's potently psycho, you know, well, psychoactive and it, and it, and it in fact binds the anandamide receptor yes. right and that's what induces that that's yes okay and okay. and so that that's that's the other part of it is that for some people um who maybe especially people who, who want benefits of these compounds but either for you know they don't need that component of thc because of what their health concern is or they don't want to have that psychoactive effect right there's people who who just don't want who don't want that and that's not a small group of people mm-hmm. um you know, they can tap into getting some of these benefits from natural compounds without having to have the effects of THC. Mm-hmm. So I think the question of whether it's necessary really depends on the individual and what they're trying to address, um, rather than it sort of being a good or bad thing. Does that make sense? Well, um, not only does it make sense, but we just got off the topic of regulation and clearly, mm-hmm. you know, in many states, even in conservative Connecticut, I'm not going to be prescribing the uh, psychoactive THC anytime soon as a, as a naturopath here, even a lot, you know, as I said, it's just, even though we're legal, it's just, it's so, so tightly regulated. It ends up sort of squashing our ability to access medical marijuana here. Um, And and I think, you know, there's, there's other people with other concerns, you know, like if they're being drug tested at work or if they're in, you know, if they're in the military or, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of other people who, you know, have valid reasons to be concerned about not wanting THC. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I don't want to diminish that there is, I think, I, I personally believe there's medical benefits for people who need it. So, Got it. Um, All right, so let's go back to the phytocannabinoids available in hemp and in some of the other um, aromatics that you've talked about. Why, am, why are we prescribing it? Um, so I've probably gone overboard and getting excited about the endocannabinoid system. I'm just going to admit that right off the bat. Um, I really feel like my personal feeling now about um, looking at phytocannabinoids and their you know, functions within human health is at a, at a level where we're looking at being able to nourish the endocannabinoid system. I see phytocannabinoids being sort of to the endocannabinoid system, almost like fish oil is to our icosanoids. Right. I feel very much like there's a lot of people probably who... Um, based on our lifestyles and just you know, sort of poor, generally poor diets for a lot of people, um, you know, not consistent uh, physical fitness, um, exposure to a great deal of stress, people walking around with pretty damaged endocannabinoid systems uh-huh. um, who would probably just benefit from using some of these things at a low level to boost their endocannabinoid health and tone. Right. Uh, 
But beyond that, um, I think that some of the best applications are um, within mental emotional health. Um, we see a lot of interest there. Um, a lot of the calls I've been getting actually in the last couple of weeks are from psychiatrists, which is probably a first time in my career. I've been probably getting more calls from uh, people practicing psychiatric medicine um, uh, with interest in you know, how can they um, support the endocannabinoid system in, in their patient population. Um, immune health is something you and I have discussed today. Um, digestive health. So the endocannabinoid system plays a big role in uh, gut motility, but also in gut immunity. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of future interest in uh, using things to manipulate or uh, feed the endocannabinoid system that are um, related to digestive health, um, maybe with irritable bowel and inflammatory bowel conditions, um, things of that nature. Isn't that um, interesting? And what, you know, any, any particular cannabinoid we'd be looking at that might be a little more gut centric? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that some, there, the gut is interesting. Remember, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, gut immunity, but the gut is also a very, um, uh, it's almost like an extension of the, the nervous system as well, right? <laughs> So um, it's rich in both CB1 and CB2 receptors. So uh, you're going to see some pretty broad applications from a lot of the different phytocannabinoids um, in the system. Um, so I think I mentioned CBG is one where there's some emerging research in, uh, in GI health, but also uh, beta-caryophyllin and some of the others. Um, and looking at things like, again, gut motility, but also gut immunity, um, they're looking at the ECS as sort of being the system that regulates the crosstalk between the microbiome and the immune system. Hmm. Right? So I've, I've, I've seen it raised in a couple of more um, uh, very preliminary studies, the question of um, ECS maybe being the system that sort of keeps the body from killing off the healthy parts of our microbiome, right? Hmm. So it keeps the immune system from maybe attacking that when it's strong and healthy, but may not regulate that as well if it's, um, if it's stressed by things like inflammation. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot more emerging on the role of, um, of the ECS there. There's some early data looking at uh, uh, things like bone health and reproductive health. And the wow. endocannabinoid, so the endocannabinoid system seems to play a real role, particularly uh, in the implantation, so in fertility. Um, and, uh, in, and in regulation of bone metabolism. So Isn't that fascinating? There's, as I said, there's so much research coming out every day. I could make this probably 100% of my job and not learn enough. Um, right, right, right. Cognit cognition, memory, mm -hmm. you know, again, pain. I know we've already talked on it. And, you know, gut immune system. God, it's just really far-reaching. So I see why you would put it into the, you know, the fish oil camp and supporting anti-inflammatory eicosanoids and... Um, and resolvents, uh, it, it seems like it, it could be a, a real workhorse intervention for us. You know, one of the foundational things we go to rather than specific application um, in certain conditions, which I think a lot of us are thinking of or are using it now. You know, I tend to think about CBD with pain and, you know, in my MS patients. Um, yeah. But really, I mean, it might be something we use, as you say, as a motility agent. And I guess because you're talking about the CB2, CB2s being uh, prevalent in the gut, um, along with CB1, this, you know, the product you designed with these um, varied sources of phytocannabinoids might actually be 
you know, more effective than leaning on just hemp oil. And I guess before you jump in on that, the other thought that I'm having is this is opens up a whole new vista as to all of these, the, the nutrients that we employ in our, you know, in our either as, 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 as food that we're taking in and spices we might recommend or as actual supplements. I mean, it, it's, it occurs to me that, you know, our curcumin, one of the, mm-hmm. the wonder spices of the world, turmeric, it must have some phytocannabinoids in it. Do you happen to know whether it does or not? So I have seen one paper that suggested that um, that there may be some phytocannabinoid activity of curcumin, and then I, I've seen some other data that refutes that. Oh, is that so right? So one of the ones that's sort of a question mark, you know, is it or isn't it? Um, but ginseng um, is on there on the list with established phytocannabinoids. Kava is on the list of plants with established phytocannabinoids in it. Um, you're just you're seeing, you know, as people start to look, um, we are again finding more and more of these things. And the other place that people are studying, which is peripheral, so for your, your listeners who have maybe gotten into reading some of this um, literature already, there's a whole emerging body, body of science around what's called the, um, the entourage effect which is looking at the interaction of um, the actual known phytocannabinoids. So the ones that either touch the receptors directly and interact with the receptors or maybe act on like the degrading enzymes, right? So we're going to call those maybe the actual phytocannabinoids. But then they're looking at many of the things like terpenes or terpenoids and flavonoids as having complementary effects to the phytocannabinoids. Right. So we really start to see, you know, the, the sort of... Um, entourage benefits of using a more whole plant extract is you have more of those constituents that are still present rather than isolating down for a single molecule, um, like isolating down just for CBD. Um, mm-hmm. You get a more broad um, benefit for sort of nourishing the entire endocannabinoid system yeah. at providing substances that interact. So um, for example, we've added in a, we have a hop ec- hops extract um, in rosemary in the product as well. And so hops being a very close cousin of, of cannabis, um, they're very closely related plants, um, has some of those other terpenoids that seem to be beneficial, um, like cumulone and lupulone and, and things that may not be direct phytocannabinoids, but may um, support the benefits of the phytocannabinoids. So right. you know, bringing those benefits together for a richer effect. Jeez, that's fascinating, right? Um, there's a molecule that we're kind of excited over here called palmitoyl phosphoethanolamide or PEA. You know, mm-hmm. it's also been used in, in um, pain management and it seems to be able to stabilize mast cells. And I do a lot of allergic disease in practice, so I've been interested in it for yeah. that reason. And yeah, it's just kind of, a, it's kind of a sort of a cool underused molecule, but it too has mm-hmm. been considered to be part of this yeah. on, Part of the entourage. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's actually a selective CB2 agonist. So, um, you know, PEA has a, has a, a really rich body of research behind yes, it. Yes, I know. It's yeah. rather extraordinary. It's like the yeah. little, little molecule that could, that nobody really knows about. Well, geez, I love this. So, you know, you can go into your, into your cabinet and pull out a whole lot of foods and you're enriching your endocannabinoid system without even knowing it. And I just, you know, it makes me appreciate the design of your product. Um, you know, you guys are smart. <laughs> You're smart over there. And I like, so you've got a, you've just got a complement of these, of these varied compounds that extend beyond, you know, the myopic hemp and marijuana land that, you know, just 
nourish and far-reaching effects. So I, I, I appreciate that. So we've talked about diet, unless you have more to add, but just diet and lifestyle to support the endocannabinoid system. Yeah, but, so, yeah well, go, go ahead. ahead. So we've, we've already mentioned some of the important places you can find phytocannabinoids in diet, but I would say that, you know, probably a lot of the things that you're, you are already recommending or your listeners already recommend in diet would further support this system. So diets that help to um, you know, eliminate the inflammatory effects in the body are all going to help people have a healthier endocannabinoid system. Um, one of the other things that's also important that I think I, I, I don't, I would doubt that anyone in the functional medicine world isn't already doing this all the time, but is making sure that people have really um, adequate levels of essential fatty acids on board um, because our own endogenous cannabinoids are made in the cell membrane from EFAs. So if, if you're EFA deficient or, you know, even borderline on that level, your own endocannabinoid system can't be healthy. You're never going to be able to do a good enough job since these cannabinoids in your body are made on demand, say on demand when you experience an acute stress or an acute injury, something like that, right? Yes. If you don't have adequate levels already on board of your essential fatty acids, you're not going to respond appropriately in terms of the response of your endocannabinoid system. So um, there's a lot that we can do through diet and, and lifestyle. Exercise, of course, good for everything, right? <laughs> Maybe um, might cause you some injuries, but, but also very good for helping to maintain uh, endocannabinoid tone. So when we talked about anandamide, um, when we first started speaking, um, uh, one of the reasons anandamide uh, has become uh, so uh, well-known sort of as a bliss molecule is we now understand it to be the thing that's responsible for uh, the experience of things like runner's high, mm -hmm. right? So as people engage in more regular exercise, they actually do a better job of kind of upping their own um, endocannabinoid tone. Um, so, uh, you know, people are looking to you know, enhance that experience of saying, feeling even better when they exercise than they want a healthier endocannabinoid system. So it, it plays very closely together. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so we talk about, um, you know, the resolvins, these, these, this, the second group of sort of a cosinoid-like compounds from fatty acids, and there's tons of cosinoids, and there's tons of these resolvins, and they all have these important network of really supportive effects, and clearly, they must be, they're touching on the endocannabinoid system, and, you know, it's like the symphony of all of these things together. I just, I really appreciate you opening up and coloring in this world for me. So, in, you know, it, it, I also want to mention at the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about the 2AG receptor, the arachidinoyl mm -hmm. glycerol receptor, yeah. arachidon, you know, so that's, arach that's actually coming from arachidonic acid. So we need a smidge of that around to support this. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, yeah, you do. I mean, uh, that is, you know, that's a, a reality is that yep. um, arachidonic acid, I think we tend to, you know, bucket things as humans as good and bad. Right? Yes, right. Um, and so we tend to say, you know, all things in this category, but um, arachidonic acid is, is important for generation of 2AG. Um, yeah. And other things in the body. So you certainly need a certain amount of it around, you know, to, to have a healthy endocannabinoid system. For sure. And we know, in, you know, when you look at the eicosanoids derived from arachidonic acid, some of those are attenuating to the pro-inflammatory ones and really necessary. Um, yeah. You know, and arachidonic acid, while generally speaking, I would say I'm trying to lower it because the standard American diet and lifestyle tends to 
promote excess quantities of it, background arachidonic or some arachidonic acid, you know, is important. And this 2-AG receptor that you, um, or compound that you mentioned is, uh, you know, is certainly one of them. That's, um, that's, that's, that's just a really nice balancing addition. So we're probably, if we're eating a healthy diet, if we're engaging in a healthy lifestyle, we're supporting our cannabinoid or endocannabinoid system, but we can also use some of these really neat products extending far beyond hemp and um, marijuana, but including, including them to uh, just optimize, optimize the system and beyond. Um, just like, how do you, how do you actually prescribe the hemp oil plus from Thorn. I mean, I see on the label, it says one capsule. I mean, is that just a maintenance? Is that realistic? I mean, what if you're actually trying to use it for pain or use it for gut motility? I mean, how might we think about it beyond just here, take one of these? How do you dose it? One thing that we don't have at this time is we don't have a good test that we can run and see how healthy people's endocannabinoid system is, right? It's not like vitamin D where I can draw your blood and run a lab and go, oh, you are low in vitamin D and therefore we need to give you this much vitamin D to get you up to normal, right? We don't know that. We do know that these things are um, very biologically active at very small levels. (laughs) So um, my general rule for people is start low and go up if you need to, rather than start. I've had a lot of people say, well, should I start with just a really high loading dose for people? And um, I haven't seen anything that would support doing that um, for anyone. In fact, a lot of people who even have sort of what I might say the least healthy endocannabinoid systems actually experience the most immediate benefit (laughs) from starting to do something to increase the health of their endocannabinoid systems. And what and what would that but a be? A general dose range with our product would probably be in the range of like one to four a day. One to like four a day. Maybe general range. But I tell you, a lot of people, I mean, one is, is, a, is a fairly healthy dose of phytocannabinoids. Um, you're getting 15 milligrams total of phytocannabinoids in one capsule, which is a, a fairly healthy amount for, uh, for people just looking to um, have some of the more broad benefits for the system. Did you say 50 or 15? 15. 15. 15. Okay, yeah. of phytocannabinoids. That's really good to know. Um, and do you, if you're, if you're going higher than one cap, do you space it out or can you take it at once? Yeah, I would probably, I mean, you could, you could take it. You certainly could take it all at once. But um, again, because the, the action of these um, compounds is pretty fleeting. Is um, it? It's probably better for most people if they're going to have a need for more than one, like to space them out a little bit throughout okay. the day. Okay. I would really tell people to start with, start with one. Um, it's, it's, it's better to start lower and go. Okay. Higher. Okay. And what, people, what, I mean, and what might you notice? They may, not, they may not need it. They just may Got not it. need it. Um, and especially if they're, if they're doing any of the other things, if they're working with a practitioner, they're doing the other things to improve the health of their body and of their whole endocannabinoid system. So if they're bringing, you know, in say some supplemental fish oil and they're cleaning up their diet, um, they're increasing their own production of endocannabinoids at the same time by doing these things. So where there are probably some specific cases where people might need much more substantial level, and at some point, honestly, they're moving into the level of needing a, a cannabinoid-based drug, right? Which is uh, not what we're doing with a dietary supplement. But um, in fairly short order here, for example, people will probably have access to Epidiolex, which is a you know, the, the GW Pharma CBD drug. So um, 
people will probably have access to, you know, many other ways to be getting higher levels of cannabinoids if they really need them for certain, for certain purposes. What is, what's GW marketing their CBD product for? Uh, for uh, resistant seizure diseases in children. So or children and young adults, I guess their, their study data goes up to, I think, about age 30 wow. um, uh, for, uh, for really severe seizure uh, disorders. And I know they've got some other research going on in other areas, um, but I think that that will be the first approved indication that they have. Jeez, resistant seizure disorder. Interesting. Okay. Can I just ask, I, w- I want to ask you two more questions and, <laughs> you know, and I know we're still emerging on this area big time and the research is kind of brand spanking new, but um, so what, how would we know if somebody is dialed in and when we need to increase? I mean, are there signs of endocannabinoid toxicity that we might look for? I mean, might somebody get loose bowel movements? I mean, stomach ache? I mean, headache? I mean, would any of those things occur if it was dosed uh, too high? Like, why are you cautioning us to start? Well, other than what you've explained is nourishing the whole system and doing a full functional approach, but would we be concerned about toxicity Um, or intolerance? At very high levels, it would be very hard for people to get, I think, from taking a product that sort of has the level of phytocannabinoids that ours has in it from getting any, like with CBD directly, for example, at very high doses, if you look at the study data, um, you're really talking about doses of hundreds of milligrams. Okay. Um, there are some documented side effects um, and some documented drug interactions, but it would be very hard to achieve those levels with our product. <laughs> it would be really, um, you know, more than anything, I think, um, I look at what's what, what people need versus what they take. So I, I think a bit more maybe in a different perspective is that people don't probably need more than maybe one or two a day. Got um, it. For most things. Um, if they have, as I said, something that's uh, a more serious indication or you know a, a much less healthy endocannabinoid system, then they may benefit from a larger, um, a larger amount. Um, irritable bowel is one I've been asked about a lot. So just since you mentioned like, you know, motility, um, that's probably the one where particularly if you had somebody who, um, I had, uh, like, uh, sorry, my brain's going blank, but if they had like IBSD where they really had more diarrhea, mm-hmm. um, I, just as a general, I think being more cautious with those people rather than less cautious is always a good idea. But, um, you know, this substance is in an, it is in an oil, which just in general, you know, somebody already has a very irritated uh, bowel and they're tending towards much more frequency of bowel movements. That's probably one place where I would, I would err on the side of caution um, and just start people slow. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. I got it. I would probably do that with anything I was giving to someone who, right. I hear you. Probiotic or anything else. Right. Because it's just, you know, possible. Let me just tell you, um, Dr. Jacques, it was really nice to meet you. I realize we both graduated from the same alma mater and we've been in the same space for a long time, but I I don't think our paths have crossed. Uh, And I just, I appreciate your time on this and, you know, your knowledge. It's been inspiring. I love the fact that you've just expanded the endocannabinoid and the phytocannabinoid story for me actually pretty exponentially and I'm you know I'm excited I'm just excited to use it I see the logic in the design of your product and I can see how we can enrich this system either directly or indirectly by what we're doing in functional medicine I look forward to more research and um, 
you know, as you, as you guys move forward on this path, we'll have to circle back and, and, and see what else you're thinking about. But, you know, I'm excited for this new product. And just, again, thank you so much for um, joining me today on New Frontiers. Well, thank you for letting me be here. And, um, you know, hopefully, I, if you ever let me come back and talk about this again, hopefully I'll be a little bit more of an expert as, as I try to look at this. Hey, no need to be modest. I am, you I am on the ground with everybody else. So um, I'm, I'm, as, I'm like an excited, you know, newbie myself in this space a little bit too. So I love talking about it, but I also love learning about it. So thank you for the opportunity to, to share it with everyone. Really Absolutely. It. Absolutely. My pleasure.